immortal yet paraphrased words of Albus Dumbledore. Hope can be found even in the darkest of times if one only remembers to turn on the light. Hello one and all and welcome back to episode 11 of Turn on the Light. I hope everybody's still doing okay, still coping with the lockdown. Um, you know, fingers crossed to see things seem to be to be getting better. So I don't want to jinx anything, but uh, maybe in the next few episodes of the podcast I'll be able to share um, some fun things that I've done in normal life and talk about, you know, normal things again. <laughs> um, yes, so here we are, um, episode 11. Um, and this week at the top of the episode here I have three lovely good news stories to share with you. Um, the first two are a few weeks old, a couple of weeks old. I just haven't gotten around to, to sharing them as yet. So without further ado, the first one um, is that Indonesia is set to receive a $56 million payment from Norway. Um, and this is for reducing deforestation to a certain level. So well done, Indonesia. Um, that's very important um, as it's the result of Indonesia preventing... Um, sorry excuse me preventing the emission of 11.23 million tons of co2 through reducing the levels of deforestation in 2017 so a big achievement there that should rightly be celebrated um so about a decade ago the two countries norway and indonesia came to an agreement to reduce emissions from deforestation and forest degradation which is known as the red plus scheme um which is interesting, I've had a little tiny, tiny little minuscule hand in that myself when I was in Indonesia in 2016. Um, the project that I was working on with Operation Wallacea was actually gathering data to contribute to this Red Plus scheme um, and looking at how much of a carbon sink um, the forest surrounding our research area at the time was. Um, so that's really cool. Um, so the agreement that was set up between the two countries was actually due to expire this year, but due to the success and how well everything is going, they have both countries have agreed to continue their partnership um, and are actually working on drafting a new agreement right now. Um, the success of Indonesia in reducing carbon emissions came from strengthening policy reforms and law enforcement um, and transparency in the forest industry licensing and forest change monitoring. So any changes happening in the forest, really strong, robust monitoring of that. Um, and it's really obviously bore fruit. Um, so, yeah, they were able to prevent all of that CO2 um, being released into the atmosphere by by protecting the forests, which is incredible. Um and Indonesia themselves are hoping that this continued partnership will help them reach their goal of 29% reduction in emissions by 2030. So I think we can all get behind that scheme and, and really hope and encourage it to, to work and be as, as much of a success as it already has been. Um, so next we have the critically endangered Hanian gibbon um, has returned from the brink of extinction. Yes, a very up-to-date, very now-of-the-moment, absolute conservation success story. Um, and that's what we at Turn on the Light um, are all about. Um, so this gibbon is actually the world's rarest primate, um, and they are now seeing a glimmer of hope um, thanks to the efforts of the Hong Kong-based organisation Kadori Conservation China, who work to protect the gibbons um, and expand and protect their habitat. Incredible news, but that's as much detail as I'm going to go into right now, as I will um, be covering their full story in a future episode. Um, this was also, I thought, just a good time to remind everyone that's listening that gibbons are not monkeys. They are, all together now, apes. Yay! <laughs> and, and finally, my final good news story. Um, yeah, very topical um, and much needed piece of good news uh, is that pangolin scales have been removed from an official 2020 list of ingredients approved for use in traditional Chinese medicine. So this is a key step in stamping out trade in the world's most trafficked mammal. So these poor little guys are uh, trafficked to the brink of extinction. Um, I believe the four species, Asian species, are um all listed as as vulnerable critic uh, endangered critically endangered on the IUCN red list um and 
that is becoming more and more of a problem for African species of pangolins as well, who are becoming more and more trafficked as as the Asian ones um, run out, as it were. Um, and obviously, I'm sure a lot of people have heard that pangolins, it, that may be where the, the novel coronavirus came from and made the jump from animals to people. Um, obviously, it's not determined. Bats are up in that mix as well. But what we can all agree on and what we can all see is that the exploitation of wildlife leads to terrible, bad things for everyone involved. <laughs> so, yeah, the pangolin scales being removed from a list of traditional Chinese medicine ingredients is incredible, massive step forward. So I really, really hope that helps in these guys, the conservation of, of these guys, of pangolins. Um, and just to pop in there um, a little note, if nobody, if people haven't seen this documentary on YouTube yet, I really recommend watching it. Um, it's called Eye of the Pangolin. It's only 45 minutes long, won't take up much of your time, um, but it's a really hard hitting documentary on pangolins, the pangolin species that exist in Africa um, and their fates at the moment and the work that's going in to protect them. Um, and I will put a link in the show notes to that YouTube video. Um, and I will also hopefully be speaking more about pangolins in a subsequent episode as well. So keep your ears peeled for that one. Okay, so now it is time to move on to the body of the episode and to introduce my species or seven species in the spotlight. So from greens to leatherbacks to olive ridleys to hawksbills. And if you don't know already, <laughs> today we are going to be delving into the magical world of sea turtles. Okay, so let's talk all thing turtles. So turtles are in the Testunides order um, and they are reptiles, um, for anybody who didn't already know that. Um, and they are what is described as amniotes. Um, so they breathe air um, and they do not lay their eggs in water despite the fact that they live in it um, for most of their lives. Um, so there's other mammals that come under that and there's a lot of birds that come under sort of an amniote um, label as well. Um, so within the sea turtle superfamily of Chelonia dea, there are seven existing species. And I will now go on to tell you about those seven lovely species. So first up, we've got the green turtle, Chelonia midas. Um, and there's two distinct populations of these guys in the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans, um, but they are also found in the Indian Ocean. Um, typical turtle, they like those sort of slightly warmer waters. Um, and also like most turtles also they travel long distances between their feeding grounds and their hatching beaches um so they will nest um on beaches at night um and then their little hatchlings they will hatch out of the eggs and they'll scramble on down to the water um i'm sure people have seen sort of videos and stuff of those tiny little teeny tiny baby turtles like flippering along like mad to to get down to the water which is just the most wonderful sight um Sadly, green turtles are listed as endangered um, and they are protected under CITES in most countries, which means it is illegal to collect them, harm them or kill them. Um, so just to explain what CITES are, so that stands for the Convention on International Trade in Endangered Species of Wild Flora and Fauna. Um, and it's split into three appendices, which is basically sort of three levels of protection. Um, so the lowest one of that is Appendix 3, which includes species that are not necessarily threatened with extinction, but still need some protections in place. Um, and trade of those of that wildlife is permitted um, with permits. Appendix 2, um, again, not necessarily threatened, but will become so, definitely will become threatened unless under strict regulation. And then up to Appendix 1, which is the highest level of protection. And this includes species that are directly threatened with extinction. And it is illegal to trade wild caught specimens. Um, and sea turtle, all sea turtles, in fact, come under Appendix 1. Um, so you cannot trade in those animals. So back to the green specifically. Uh, these guys grow up to one and a half metres long um, and they reach an average weight of around 68 to 190 kilograms. It's quite a sizeable turtle. Not the biggest, but not the smallest. Um, they have a typical sea turtle exper uh, experience. I'm sure they do. Um, but they also have a typical sea turtle appearance. <laughs> um, a teardrop-shaped carapace um, and paddle-like flip flippers. Um, the carapace is just the, their shell, essentially. Um, 
Yeah, and their name comes from the green fat that's found beneath the carapace, not actually the carapace itself. Um, so what you find underneath that, that's where they get their green name from. Um, and they are a mostly herbivorous species of sea turtle, um, which is neither unusual or not. Turtles can be omnivorous, carnivorous, herbivorous. They like a little mixture of different things. So the threats to these guys come mainly from human activity, which is absolutely shocking, of course. Um, so they're hunted themselves, the adult individuals, for their meat, um, and eggs are also hunted for food. Um, of course, pollution in the oceans is a big factor, threatening turtles, um, particularly plastics. Um, fishing bycatch, um, so turtles often get caught up in fishing equipment that trawlers will use to catch other animals, such as shrimp, um, and obviously get caught up in it and sadly pass away. Um, habitat loss is a big one as well, particularly loss of nesting beaches, um, where there's might be a lot of development happening, um, you know, from hotels and people wanting to stay near beaches and, and things like that. So the loss of nesting beaches is really affecting them also. Okay, so that's a little bit about the greens there. Next up, we have the loggerhead turtle. Um, their Latin name is Coretta Coretta. So these are also found in the Atlantic, Pacific and Indian Ocean, as well as small populations in the Mediterranean Sea. So these guys' life cycle begins the same as the greens. The females come ashore to lay their eggs. Um, but the difference with these guys is they have a relatively low reproductive rate. Um, so they'll lay about four clutches of eggs in a year, um, but then they become quiescent for two to three years, which essentially just means that they're, they become dormant, that they don't become dormant like fully in themselves, like the whole <laughs> organism, but their, their, um, their laying cycle becomes dormant, um, every two to three years. So these guys can actually live up live for up to 67 years so they're quite a long lived turtle and they're slightly larger than the greens um, they can reach weights of up to 200 kilograms um, their carapace is a little bit of a different color from the greens ranging from sort of yellow orange to a reddish brown um, as i mentioned before there these guys are also protected under cites appendix one um, and they are listed as vulnerable on the iucn red list they face similar threats to the greens. Um, for example, um, in Mexico, turtle eggs are quite a common meal and they're believed to be an aphrodisiac, which I'm sure that's not really true. But <laughs> um, yes, so loggerheads are also under threat um, from fishing vessels and bycatch is a really, really big problem for these guys. Um, it is their biggest threat in open ocean. Okay, so moving on to Olive Ridley sea turtle. So this guy's Latin name is the Lep Lepidochelus olivacea. And now, uh, please tell me if I've said that wrong. <laughs> um, so these are the second smallest sea turtle, but also the most abundant. Um, they're primarily found in warm tropical waters of the Pacific Ocean and the Indian Ocean, but you can also find them in those slightly warmer areas of the Atlantic. Um, these guys are a bit smaller, so they grow up to um, about 60 centimetres in length and they rarely weigh over 50 kilograms, um, so quite different to the other two that I've just described there. Um, and these guys do get their name from the colour of their carapace, so it's an olive-coloured coloured shell there, hence uh, Olive Ridley, the name. Um, and these guys are probably best known in the turtle world for their behaviour of synchronised nesting. Um, so this is where thousands of females come together on the same beach to lay eggs um, and this is called Arabada. Um, quite a sight, all of these thousands of females all come into the same beach to lay all their eggies. Um, so sadly despite being the most abundant they are still classed as vulnerable and thankfully still protected under CITES Appendix 1. These guys are most vulnerable from predators as hatchlings um, so that, that's a big problem fact for them also because obviously all of these females are coming together and laying so many eggs all at once um you get a lot of predation on their eggs from from raccoons coyotes feral dogs things like that and then the actual hatchlings themselves are, are threatened by snakes and birds um etc uh 
But of course, let's not forget that humans are still listed as the biggest threat to the olive ridley turtle. Um, egg collections, killing nesting females, um, boat collisions can harm and kill these guys, um, and obviously fishery incidents, as we've touched on for the other two turtles also. Okay, this next one is a bit of an enigma, a um, bit of a different guy. So this is the Australian flatback sea turtle. And that's Natatal depressus. Um, this, I'd say this is the least well-known turtle. Um, and that's probably because it's endemic to the sandy beaches and shallow coastal waters of Australia. Um, so it's only found there. Um, this guy has a more flat, a flattened back, a sort of a lower dome on its carapace than others. Hence the name, the flatback sea turtle. Um, similar size, I'd say, to loggerheads and greens, up to 70 to 90 centimetres long, and can weigh between 70 and 90 kilogram. kilograms, even. Um, so this dude still, of course, faces all of the major threats that the others do, um, from habitat loss to the wildlife trade, egg and meat collection, bycatch problems, pollution, etc. However, they are listed as data deficient on the IUCN Red List. Um, so that means that there's just there's simply not enough data to be able to assess the level of threat to these guys. Doesn't mean they're not threatened. Doesn't mean they are. It just means that there's not enough to really um, get the full picture. But it is believed by biologists to not be quite as threatened as other sea turtle species, um, mainly due to its small dispersal range. Okay, next up we have the big daddy, the leatherback sea turtle, Dermachelis coriacea. So this guy is easily differentiated from others, well, A, due to its size, and B, due to the lack of the bony shell, the lack of um, that, that hard shell on his back. So their carapace instead is covered by skin and oily flesh, um, so a leathery look, hence leatherback. I mean, all of these turtles are named in, like, sort of really does what it says on the tin kind of way, which is really helpful. Um, so these guys are the largest of all living turtles, and they are actually the fourth largest, heaviest reptile, full stop. Um, you know, I think number one, two, and three are, are from the crocodile um, family. So these bad boys can grow up to almost two metres in length and weigh anything from 250 to a whopping 700 kilograms average i mean there is outliers there has been one that's found that's that's much bigger than that and i'll talk about that in the fun facts um so these guys are also the most cosmopolitan of the turtles with populations reaching as far north as alaska and norway and as far south as new zealand's southernmost tip um again they nest on land on on beaches as with all turtles um and they are listed as vulnerable on the iucn red list um, they tend to experience a lower level of hunting for their meat um, as, and these are not my words because this grosses me out, but their flesh is too oily and fatty to be considered palatable. So good, good for those guys, I, I guess. Um, however, their nests are still raided because the eggs are obviously still um, quite desirable and bycatch, um, bycatch problems happen um quite commonly with these guys obviously as they're huge um so quite easy to get caught up um light pollution is also a big threat to leatherbacks the the hatchlings the little babies um and it is also a threat to all turtles full stop um so obviously when turtles hatch and they're, they're little nestlings and they're doing that little scramble trying to get down to the water's edge um what happens with light pollution from human generated sources like hotels street lamps things like that the hatchlings get disorientated and they'll turn around and crawl towards those light sources once they've hatched rather than down the beach towards the sea and then that can obviously lead to them getting um, struck by cars on roads or just getting totally lost and never making it to the sea um so that that's also um, a big threat for these guys um for the leatherbacks and for all all sea turtles now moving into a bit darker waters if you like um so moving on to the critically endangered hawksbill turtles um now this is eret mochellis imbricata um so their distribution is across the atlantic and the indo-pacific um oceans again those warmer waters um this guy's name comes from his curving beak with a prominent 
atomium. Uh, now, atomium is the cutting edge of a bird or a turtle beak. So I learnt that word when researching these turtle stories. So now you've learnt that word too. Atomium. So, yeah, so they've got their curving little beak. Quite distinctive. Um, distinguishes him from his other turtley pals. Um, now, this guy, he spends some time in open water, um, open ocean, but he's similar to his Aussie cousin in that he likes to be in shallow lagoons um, and coral reefs where they like to feed within the coral reefs. Um, now, the hawksbill is a mid-sized turtle of up to a metre in length and weighing maximum up to around uh, 100 kilograms. Um, so they're beach nesting again, of course, as with all, um, with significant nesting sites in places like Mexico, the Seychelles, Indonesia and Australia. Um, so obviously threats to these guys are human, human made threats also. Um, they're still taken by humans from the wild, although it is, of course, illegal, as we have discussed under CITES. Um, so Hawksbill are hawksbill turtles are the typical turtle who you will see in um like tortoise shell decorations like that tortoise shell kind of kind of coloring um it comes from the hawksbill turtle shells um so that's incredibly popular for decoration um and if you know if you thought it was something that's becoming less and less popular and, and dying out and people don't want real turtle shells anymore adorning their their clothes, their ornaments and all sorts. Um, sadly, it's not. Even as recently as, as 2016, processed shells um, were readily available um, in places like the Dominican Republic and Colombia. Um, so sadly, that's a trade that is that is still occurring. And the sad thing about hawksbills um, is that their populations are thought to have declined by about 80% um, over the last 100 to 135 years. Um, as I said, popping them firmly in that critically endangered uh, category on the IUCN red list. And now last, but certainly not least, is the also critically endangered Kemp's Ridley sea turtle, Lepidochelis kempi. And this is in the same genus as the olive ridley turtle, um, and is the smallest and rarest of the sea turtles. So these guys are teeny tiny, super cute, um, only getting up to about 70 centimetres in length, and their maximum weight um, will only be about 45 kilograms. So they're about as long as they are wide, um, so squat little cuties um, with very sweet faces, um, and they're olive grey in colour. Um, and they really like shallow water as well, so they are shallow water benthic feeders. Um, benthic is just a word that relates to anything on the sea's on the sea's bottom um so anything in the substrate there that they might like to feed on little creatures uh, seaweed plants all that just the bottom layer um of the sea of the seabed um they feed mostly on crabs um and these guys are actually unique in that they nest primarily during the day um which could also be a factor that means that they're the most endangered um obviously it's easier to to see and catch these guys in daylight um if that's what hunters and, and poachers are, are wanting to do um yes so yeah as i sort of just touched on there as is the trend with all of these sea turtles um hunting originally depleted their numbers greatly um but today the biggest threats are actually habitat loss pollution and entanglement in fishing gear sadly um so all in all sea turtles are what you might term a classic example of a broadly distributed group that has historically suffered big population declines. So why am I telling you these depressing things? Well, I'm telling you the depressing bits to tell you the positive stuff. So, since the 1950s, the declines in all species of sea turtles have spurred conservation efforts. So now worldwide, there is much better beach protections, much better strict strict regulations on bycatch across all fisheries all over the world um, and the establishment of rigorously protected marine areas. So conservation organisations worldwide um, have worked with shrimp trawling industries, for example, to develop turtle exclusion devices, which are now mandatory for all shrimp trawlers. So 
if you're going out in a shrimp trawler, you're going out to catch shrimp, you absolutely have to have these turtle exclusion devices. Um, and these work for even the biggest turtles. So these work even for those big leatherback dudes. So turtles have protections also not under CITES, but individual country legislation worldwide, such as the Endangered Species Act in the US, uh, the Sea Turtle Association of Japan, um, the Marine Research Foundation even works for the conservation of turtles in Oman. Um, we also have the Convention of Migratory Species, an inter-American convention for protection and conservation of sea turtles. Um, and that has led to increased conservation and management of these guys um, everywhere that that is enacted. So, what is the actual tangible success after all of those measures being put into place for sea turtles well i'll tell you so studies are showing more upward trends than downward trends in populations which is a big big step forward and not only that but we are seeing significant increases in the abundance of all sea turtles and the number of nest uh, number of hatchlings actually making it to the ocean increasing the abundance of these animals so this news is encouraging, showing that even small sea turtle populations have the capacity to recover. Um, and I think, you know, it just goes to show that when people really work together, um, uh, uh, conservation efforts happening world over, real differences can be made. Um, and I actually saw a really cute, lovely story when I was researching um, this particular success story. Um, that there used to be a group of uh, poachers um, who were egg hunting in Nicaragua um, and since being educated on these turtles and since being told about their wonder and their importance in the oceans, they actually switched from being egg poachers to beach defenders, um, which is just a small example of how awareness raising can really change the story. Um, so yeah, as I, as I said, positive trends like this are likely the result of multi-country multi and multi-organisation efforts to increase effective protection of eggs and nesting females, as well as reducing bycatch in those fishing vessels. And that isn't to say, I have to stress, that isn't to say that conservation concerns of sea turtles don't remain. It just means that the successes seen are full of hope and most importantly highlight the importance of continuing that conservation and continuing these monitoring efforts that underpin this global conservation success story. Okay, so we're now on to fun facts about sea turtles. Number one is very important. Contrary to popular belief, a turtle cannot come out of its shell. The shell is part of the turtle and grows with the turtle. So all of those cartoons where they run out of their shell just simply isn't possible. Okay, fun fact number two. Turtles are thought to be able to live for up to 80 years, which makes them very old dudes. Um, Within Testunidae uh, order as well, of course, you've got tortoises, which can live much longer. And even though we're discussing turtles right now, I just want to get in here about the oldest living tortoise, um, which was a radiated tortoise from Madagascar called Tui Malila, who reached 188 years old. Fun fact number three. Turtles don't have teeth. They use their beaks to grasp food, which are made of keratin, which is the same stuff as our fingernails. Now, fun fact number four. Wales, the country, Wales, holds the record for the largest sea turtle ever found. Crazy, right? So in 1988, a leatherback was found on the beach measuring 2.5 metres in length and weighing 900 kilograms. 900 kilograms, nearly a tonne. That is more than 140 stone. Big boy. And number five. My favourite fact is that females always return to the same beach that they hatched on to lay their own eggs. They navigate back to these beaches using the Earth's magnetic fields, which is crazy clever. Small side point about the males, they pretty much never leave the water once they enter it. Madness. Lots more to say about turtles, lots more fun facts, but I'll keep it at five so I can move on to introduce my special guest for today. So, 
Ella Garrett is a passionate marine biologist with a master's in marine environmental management. She has studied fish and coral ecology, manta ray behaviour, worked with dolphins, whales and sea turtles, to name but a few of her adventures. She has a drive for educating the masses on the issues that our marine environments face and works hard to raise public awareness, both in work and personal life. Let's have a chat to Ella about her journey, her motivations and her overall love of all things marine. Hi, how are you? I'm good, how are you? Good, thank you. Yeah, not so bad. Yeah. Good. Yeah, um, as I mentioned just there, so you're currently working with Sussex Wildlife Trust as a living seas officer, um, which when you sent me your your details and bits and bobs over struck me as a very cool job title. Um, So I was hoping that you could give me and the listeners sort of a rough idea of what that would usually look like day-to-day obviously not right now but usually your day-to-day yes so um I actually was just about to start um my surveys so part of the job I am managing two citizen science research projects um one called shore search which is a wildlife trust initiative um and so it's intertidal surveys, basically rock pooling with volunteers. Um, so going along to different sites all along the Sussex coast and collecting data um, from the intertidal zone, um, which is a lot of fun because it's rock pooling and you're getting to search in, you know, little pools and find all the bizarre cool creatures that you can find in rock pools but it's also collecting really important um, baseline data about the ecology of the area Um, and the other project is sea search so that's um, diving surveys mapping the seabed collecting data on habitats and species Um, again collecting baseline data about all the different habitats within the area that is actually a marine conservation society initiative sea search um, but I'm the coordinator for Sussex mm-hmm. um, yeah so just before just after lockdown was when I was supposed to start those the survey season was beginning oh, no. so sadly I haven't done any uh, which is very sad <laughs> And is um, sea search, is that is that volunteers as well, sort of diving? And- it is, yeah. So sadly, I wouldn't actually get to dive for work, just for insurance per reasons. Mm-hmm. It's quite complicated. So I would, I would be out on the boats, um, coordinating the dives, managing everything, um, planning the surveys, but sadly not in the water. But, you know, still out on the boat, being out in nature, um, but yes, the first, first of those was supposed to be last week, mid, yeah. mid-April. Um, so yeah, yeah. This pandemic is putting a bit of a, putting a damp <laughs> spanner on in the yeah. works. <laughs> so is, um, you say it's a citizen science project. Would there, is there potentially any way, um, you know, if people are doing their hour of exercise a day and they come across something that they want to record um, and they want to sort of let the wildlife trust know about what they've seen is there a way for for people to do that is that sort of open to um to anyone sort of putting in observations um or is it sort of all within that structured volunteer research gathering period which is sadly not happening yeah so typically yes it would be in the like the organized (laughs) events for volunteers but obviously if people are out and about, always we like to hear about you know what people are seeing. If there's anything unusual, anything at all, um, yeah. So I'm not allowed, obviously because we're in lockdown. Mm-hmm. I can't I can't go out even to survey the areas on my own. Sadly, um, so yeah, anything that people see, I'd love to hear about it. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, so, as you just said there, sadly, um, surveys are are on hold. Um, but that sort of um, opened the doors and opened opportunities for people in those situations who can't get out and about to um, think outside the box, as it were, um, to sort of engage the public remotely and get people sort of interested and passionate about these things from 
their homes or from their devices and stuff like that um and sort of wanted to know how that's going for you if you're getting sort of a lot of engagement from the public whilst working from home um yeah I mean I think it's really important at the moment for people to still feel that connection to nature because yes we can go out for a one hour of exercise or whatever it is at the moment um but we're all pretty much, you know, stuck at home. And I don't know about you, I'm sure you probably feel the same, but if I don't get outside and go into nature at least once a day, I feel like I'm going a bit crazy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so I do think it's really important to kind of keep that connection up for people. And yeah, the Wildlife Trust is, through stuff I'm doing and and loads of different people who work for the trust, you know, we're doing lots of different things on social media, um, blogs, videos, um, just po- even just posting, you know, nice pictures of nature. It just gives people that window into that world that they might not be able to get into at the moment. Um, and I think it's just really important for mental health um, as much as anything. Yeah, absolutely, definitely. And I think <clears throat> I think now is sort of a time as well that people are maybe becoming a little bit more engaged with our local wildlife and our local habitats. Um, whereas before, maybe sort of people were able to, you know, travel to Africa or travel to Indonesia or all these yeah. amazing places and and sort of see all the biodiverse ecosystems out there. And now we're sort of noticing what's right in front of our faces <laughs> almost. Yeah, definitely. There's some amazing wildlife in the UK, for sure. And I think, yeah, people, we need to talk about it more, I think. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> are you um, <laughs> are you taking part in the City Nature Challenge um, this weekend? Yes. I yeah. Will. Yeah. So just definitely. to, just for the listeners, the City Nature Challenge is, is um, something that's happening this weekend from Friday to Sunday, um, where you can get out as far as you can go at the moment and you record your observations in the iNaturalist app um, and that's a big piece of citizen science um, as well and all that data will go towards recording what's what's in areas um, but uh, I think this po- actual podcast episode will be released after that's happened but the iNaturalist app is um, always there and always available for observations to be uploaded um, in it and it's really cool because it identifies species for you or suggests what the species might be for you um, if you have no idea. So that's pretty cool. It's a bit of a learning tool as well. Yeah, I found it's pretty accurate as well. I don't know about you. Yeah, I was really surprised. I t- sort of tested it on a few species that I know what they are um, just to make sure. <laughs> um and then, um, not I didn't trust it, but, um, and then sort of got down into sort of butterflies and moths and things I'm not as familiar with. Um, and yeah, it's been great. It's been really, really fun, actually. Yeah, it's, it's definitely a great initiative. And again, it's that getting people out into nature, even if it's just their back gardens, recording the birds they can see, the plants, the insects, like anything is great yeah absolutely now um the irony of my my next question um, i'm going to go way away from the uk um and ask you um about your paddy dive master certification that you did in indonesia um which i presume sort of led you initially be a- being able to do much more underwater work yeah for sure like um one of the main reasons i did it was to kind of advance my opportunities within marine conservation I kind of knew I didn't want to work as a dive professional as such um like I I was pretty sure I didn't want to carry on and do my instructor course because although I'm sure it's great for many people (laughs) I think I would get bored just teaching the same courses over and over and I, I was using it to yeah just gain more skills that could potentially lead to more opportunities within marine conservation. Yeah, um, which it did, didn't it? I mean, and an area of research that I really, really wanted to ask you about um, is the work you did with the Manta Trust in the Maldives on manta ray behaviour. Um, that sounds amazing. Uh, yeah, if you could tell us yeah, more about that. Yeah, it was incredible. Um, so that was actually all the data collection for that was um, free diving. So oh, I wow. didn't actually use the yeah scuba qualifications for that but that was actually my um 
master's dissertation research project. Um, so I was, yeah, lucky enough to go out to the Maldives and kind of be home for two months to collect data on um, manta ray and tourism interactions and analysing the behaviour of the manta rays. So the study site, um, the main study site was a well-known feeding aggregation area. So basically it was a, a bay called Hanifaru Bay. It's quite famous in terms of divers people seem to have heard of it because it's got these <laughs> huge aggregations of manta rays it's basically shaped like a funnel and during one of the monsoons and i forget which one i should know that but i've forgotten um basically the winds and the currents coincide that loads and loads of plankton basically gets trapped into this bay which is about the size of a football pitch, if I remember correctly. Um, and the mantas know this and they come and mass feed on this plankton. Um, so it's obviously a massive tourist hotspot because you're almost guaranteed during certain parts of the time of the year to see a lot of mantas. So I think the most recorded in one site one time was over like 200 individuals wow um the most i saw was about 80 but you know it's hard to tell <laughs> yeah so in that site um already um quite a few years ago now scuba diving was banned um because it became such a popular site what was happening was you were having boats coming in dropping people wherever you'd have snorkelers on top the mantis feeding and then scuba divers underneath and they were just getting kind of squished into less and less space to feed being trapped by the bubbles underneath and the people on top so work by the manta trust and local ngos and things managed to get legislation in place to ban scuba diving there just have snorkeling and only and have very strict regulations on the number of boats allowed in um how many boats were allowed a day, how many tourists are allowed in there a day. You can only stay there for 45 minutes maximum, um, things like that. So it was much better regulated. So by the time I was doing my research there, all these regulations were in place. But obviously, it's still a popular spot and there's still human and animal interactions happening. So what I was looking at was whether the human behavior was affecting the mantis feeding behavior and whether it was hindering it, stopping them feeding, anything like that. Mm -hmm. And uh, can you can you discuss any of your results? Yeah, so or, basically yeah. as long so there are any boats. So the Manta Trust there are, are, are affiliated with the Four Seasons Resort, so they run mm -hmm. tourist boats out there. So most boats will do a briefing beforehand to tell you what you can and can't do um so no going don't go closer than three meters don't approach them from behind because it can spook them because that's basically where that's their blind spot that's where mm -hmm. predators large sharks essentially will attack them from behind so they can be spooked and you know fly off um and basically what I recorded was that if people did adhere to the regulations and the advice, um, the code of conduct, that it didn't disturb their feeding behavior. The presence of humans did not seem to uh, yeah, stop them feeding. But if things like chasing happened, approaching them too closely, approaching them from the wrong direction, then yes, um, certainly can affect their be their feeding behavior it's that uh, delicate balance of of appreciating the nature and, and you know wanting people to see it to get impassioned about it and excited about it but absolutely also yeah well at the same time yeah yeah and do you know um i mean i'm guessing it's it's fairly well regulated like it's quite sort of stringently adhered to um, yeah so they have employed rangers um from like the national parks um so it's a bias Biosphere, UNESCO Biosphere, I believe. Okay. Oh, that's really good. That's really cool. Yeah, so they've got, yeah, 
a dedicated team of rangers who make sure people are adhering to the regulations, which is really good because I think that's an issue with a lot of protected areas, particularly marine. I mean, that's my obviously area of knowledge is marine. Okay. You know, you've got protected areas, but essentially a lot of them are just paper parks because there's no regulation. Mm-hmm. Sorry, there's no yeah. enforcement. There's regulation, but no enforcement. So it's essentially they're not protected. So it's good that that's, you know, actually happening. And they're doing they're doing well. Yeah. Fab. And um, in a it's just sort of like sticking on that kind of theme of things of restoration of habitats and such. Um, in a previous episode of Turn on the Light, I spoke to um, a lady called Marin Tor about coral restoration and translocation, um, which I understand you have had a hand in doing that um, yourself in the Seychelles. Um, so, yeah, I wanted to ask you a bit about that as well um, and how successful that proved to be for you when you were doing that. Yeah, so that was in um, like a marine educator role. But part of my job was yeah managing the reef restoration project that we had there in the bay. Um, so. Essentially, we were collecting um, what we called corals of opportunity. So basically pieces of coral that had broken off the reef naturally through storm damage or um, fish feeding on the reef or even people accidentally kicking it. So you collect these small pieces, um, attach them to hard surfaces, surfaces so that they can start to regrow. Um, and I, I listened to that coral episode and she went into loads of detail about coral, so I won't again. <laughs> um, <laughs> Um, but yeah, it was a fairly small scale um, project. So yes, it was definitely increasing the biodiversity of that particular bay. Um, so the Seychelles in the most recent mass bleaching event of uh, the the really bad one in 2015, 2016, mm-hmm. the inner islands of the Seychelles lost something ridiculous like more than 50% live coral cover on average. And I think the inner islands were even more. Wow. Um, So uh, the bay I was working in was, you know, really badly affected the the branching Acropora corals, which they're they're fast growing corals, um, about 10 centimetres a year, which is fast for corals. A lot (laughs) of that was gone. So that's what we were trying to repopulate mainly I mean we're trying to keep a nice wide diversity of species but that was they were the kind of the easiest ones to do um so it's hard to say whether it's effective I mean so we had a coral nurse I mean it is effective sorry it works obviously as a method um but you then obviously you have to contend with more bleaching events and Mm -hmm you know, it's, it's, it's going to kill your natural reef, it's going to kill your coral nursery. So it almost feels like you're fighting a losing battle sometimes because... Putting out fires almost. Yeah, and yeah, I think often when there's a bleaching event happening, there's almost not, there's not much you can do. Like, we were trying to think of ways of mitigating the high temperatures by moving the nursery to a deeper depth Mm -hmm. to try and get to you know cooler waters but we couldn't go that deep in you know restricted by (laughs) uh, equipment and you know the fact that we're humans and we don't have a submarine (laughs) and the fact that corals you know you know they only grow at about 30 meters maximum a bit they can go deeper depending on the species um yeah so it's it's tricky I think they're really great initiatives obviously reef restoration projects but I think we need to tackle global warming Mm -hmm. climate change at a kind of a higher level yes all these things are brilliant that people are doing but we need to reduce emissions yeah yeah <laughs> totally agree with that like yeah it's the bigger picture stuff isn't it it's like climate change needs to 
be combated that temperature rise across the world needs to be combated because yeah otherwise as you say it's just putting out fires and and then the source of the problem um is still pervasive it's still a a massive threat that won't get any better unless yeah governments come together and and sort it out basically yeah (laughs) i mean what what was good about the project i was working on was that it was raising awareness Mm -hmm. about climate change coral bleaching and so we would take people out to the coral nursery show them the corals growing there then show them the reef and showing because we had so we had the nursery where they basically regrew to a certain size and then we transplanted them back onto the actual reef so drilling into bedrock basically or dead coral not onto live coral obviously because that would be counterproductive and then transplanting them um, so it was good to show people, you know, what what could be done. And I think often with marine conservation issues is bec- is that because it's under the water, it's literally out of sight, out of mind. So unless someone mm-hmm. has a particular interest in the ocean, maybe he's always lived by the ocean, or anything like that, people who live far away have never seen the sea, it's hard to connect people to that unless they've seen it often. That actually is a nice segue into my next question, which is literally, (laughs) um, uh, uh, literally asking about raising awareness of, of marine conservation. Um, Saying just a large part of, you know, your, your career so far has been um, educating people on marine issues, raising that awareness and, I guess that kind of almost answers my question of what did you find the most effective ways of engaging people and to get people to really care? Is it that literally like seeing it in front of, in front of their faces? Yeah, I think so. It's just, it's yeah. Getting people out there. And if that's not possible, then showing them really amazing images of the ocean. I mean, blue, the blue planet two series did an incredible job of, raising awareness of like the plastics issue and loads of stuff came out of that and that was just literally showing people its negative effects on marine animals environments and things um yeah so I worked for a little while with the Yorkshire Wildlife Trust um with school kids and at least once I had a class um from Leeds and some of the kids had never seen the sea before wow which just blows my mind <laughs> yeah you can't imagine it so much. um and they were so excited it was amazing to see I, can't, I think they were only around seven and eight maybe nine um and yeah just it was just it was amazing seeing their faces like light up like oh wow it's huge <laughs> and just yeah, and I think often catching people at a young age as well is really important and, yeah, igniting that that passion for protecting what's there. Because I think if, you know, if people, if you don't know about something, why would, how can they care about it and therefore how can they make changes in their lives to protect it? Exactly. I think that's one of, like, for me, some of the best moments sort of, being with wildlife or doing surveys or something like you see something and your face lights up and you're beaming from ear to ear and you turn and the person next to you looks exactly the same and yeah yeah. same excitement for the moment (laughs) yeah and I think so yeah as conservationists just being really enthused about what's out there can then pass that on to other people yeah yeah and help protect things yeah so that's obviously talking about sort of the lovely the lovely aspects of of conservation getting people really sort of ramped up about it um but of course there also is sort of the other side of it where a lot of conservationists have experienced perhaps some less desirable experiences in working life or or volunteering life um which a lot of people in the industry have i'm sure that you've had um sort of some negative experiences yourself um and so i wanted to ask you like sort of not focusing on the negatives but looking to the positives that came out of the situation um like what motivated you again once you'd sort of come through these negative um experiences and what what sort of like got you back on track into thinking like right no let's let's do this 
I mean, I think in a way the negative experiences, you can turn them into positives because I think you can definitely learn from them. For example, knowing what sort of organisation you don't want to work for in the future. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And... Yeah, learning things about yourself that you might not have otherwise, such as being able to stand up for yourself, um, being more assertive, that sort of thing, more like personal growth sort of thing. Um, And I think for me, like, this is what I want to do. I, you know, I want to work in marine conservation, so... I don't think anything's ever going to stop me wanting to do that. Um, so I'll carry on. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Through all the rest of you. <laughs> I'm gonna exactly. <laughs> now, that's really interesting um, as well, because you're sort of you giving me a bit of information about yourself and your background and stuff. Your background wasn't sort of traditionally sciencey in air quotes. Um, your undergrad degree was in art and design. I think that's right. Um, yeah. So what, what what was it that made you sort of fall in love with the ocean and, and say marine conservation is for me? Well, I'd all, obviously, I'd, as a child, um, always loved nature, always <laughs> loved the sea. Um, but I lived in Sheffield, which is sort of slap bang in the middle yeah. of the country, South Yorkshire. Not near the sea, but we, I mean, the Yorkshire's, Yorkshire's, we've got an amazing coastline. Um, but just, yeah, as a, as a child and as a, at school, I never really saw myself as a sciencey sort of person. I was always more into art and music. Um, and I don't know, I think it just maybe became like a internalised thing about myself that, oh, I can't do science. It's not for me. I like that. I don't. I can't do it. <laughs> um, yeah. And then, so yeah, I did an art and design degree, which I don't regret. I loved it. Um, and then basically after I graduated, I went traveling. Um, classic classic gap year. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and yeah, it was essentially, it was learning to dive. Um, I actually, weirdly, used to have a bit of a phobia of fish. Oh no! Um, <laughs> yeah, um, the thought of like a fish touching me like fills me with dread and fear. Um, I don't know why particularly, but just yeah, couldn't imagine being close to a fish in the water because I just thought it would be awful. <laughs> um, so I'd never really considered uh, scuba diving as a an activity, and then I was out in South Africa and. The only reason I did it was because the local dive centre had a two for one deal on and my friend wanted to learn. So I thought, oh, please do it with me. I was like, oh, yeah, all right. I may as well give it a go. And then it was just like, boom. How have I not like. It was just such a like. Opening the door moment, turning on the light moment. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so essentially yeah it was learning to scuba dive it might seem sound really cheesy I don't know but it was just literally seeing this other world before your eyes and yes I'd always loved like dolphins and whales and things um and that's actually what I was doing out in South Africa I was volunteering for a uh, whale and dolphin monitoring project population monitoring project um but yeah, I just, it was like a whole new thing for me and it just completely blew my mind and I was like, oh my God, this is amazing. The ocean is incredible. I want to, I want to work in it. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's so good. I love that. I was scared of fish and now I'm a marine conservationist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There you go. Moral of the story, face your fears. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, I love that story. And it is literally, as you say, it's another world, isn't it? If if people haven't ever gone diving before, I highly recommend like at once in once in your life, if you have the opportunity to do it, then do because it is just yes, yeah, such an eye opening eye opening experience. It's, Incredible. It's quite, yeah. Yeah. It's the best thing I've ever learned to do. Like yeah. 
it was also the people out in South Africa that I met that sort of changed my perspective and of looking at the world and nature and stuff and mm. my place in it and what I could do to help um just opened my eyes to loads of issues that I kind of just not that I didn't know necessarily know about obviously I knew about climate change and everything and overfishing but it was just being immersed in that world was just like mm. Ah, okay this is yeah now I get it yeah (laughs) and that's kind of like I always feel like without sounding sort of too hippy dippy or anything (laughs) but I always find like in the science world there is that artistic element of things of being part of something bigger and part of of the bigger picture and you you know you're it's, it's all one kind of thing um and uh I know that you still you still use your art skills um, and your talent um, to spread the ocean wonder um, and issues that the marine environment faces through your art. Um, and I understand you've got a little a little website and an Instagram um, that displays that. I do. I have to confess that I don't do as much as I maybe would like to in various jobs I've had I have yeah incorporated like graphic design into yeah raising awareness of marine conservation um with like infographics and illustrations and videos and things um and recently in lockdown I've started painting again because I haven't painted in years um so that's nice um but yeah, it's just going back to the raising awareness and education side of things. I think strong imagery, if you can't get people out to the sea to physically see it themselves, I think really good, strong, nice, not nice, that's such a rubbish <laughs> <laughs> Effective imagery can be really, really helpful in getting people engaged. And I think that's what I've tried to do with combining the two fields basically absolutely because i mean the the, a large part of the wonder of the natural world that that people love so much is its beauty isn't it basically yeah so yeah showing people that is a is i feel is is a surefire way to get people um engaged and caring um and not having that disappear and be left with a desolate waste yeah definitely Um, (laughs) i mean even like one of my favourite things to do is look through ID books and just look at fish faces. <laughs> no, because they can just be look. They can just look so ridiculous and amazing and beautiful and ugly all yeah. at the same time. And it's yeah. just like, how do you exist? You're amazing. <laughs> so true. Fish are very good at that. Parrotfish. I love parrotfish. Yeah. They're cutie, cutie patooties, oh. and you can hear them, can't you, when you're yeah, under the water, yeah, like really having loud. a lunch. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, amazing. Um, and is it all right if I pop in your Instagram handles and website into yes, the show notes? Please so do. People can take a look, um, immerse themselves in in your art, and immerse themselves underwater whilst being in lockdown. Yeah, <laughs> I'm just here dreaming of diving, basically. Dreaming yeah, being you can hold your breath. <laughs> <laughs> that's a bit, that's a question actually. Um, talking about free diving, how long can you hold your breath for? I have in the past, I mean, I'm very out of practice, but two and a half minutes, which isn't, isn't amazing, but I couldn't do that now. If if you can build yourself up to it. So I did, I actually did a a free diving course in Indonesia after I did my dive master training. Um, So yeah, you, you, to pass the course, you had to hold your breath for over two minutes. I think it was. And yeah, I managed to get to that is thirty, and I've gone to like twenty-one meters on one breath. Oh wow! Which is nothing compared that... to like the pros, but I was proud of it. <laughs> yeah, I, you should be hundred percent. I can't hold my breath for five seconds. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I'm terrestrial. <laughs> oh well, that was lovely thank you for giving us a bit of an insight into your world and those lovely stories um i have a couple of last questions which i have to ask everybody mm-hmm. um always prove to be the most difficult ones <laughs> um so my first one is if you could have any animal adaptation what would it be and why i mean it would have to be to breathe underwater i think 
just so I could go in there whenever I wanted (laughs) but I would also not like to lose the ability to breathe on land either so (laughs) Um, I want it all (laughs) but yeah just being able to go go out and dive without all the equipment and be able to breathe for as long as I wanted underwater and see everything for as long as I wanted that would be great definitely it's a popular choice and I can see why yes and my last question is who would play you in a movie of your life I really struggle with this one See, yeah, I've got quite a prominent chin and people say that I look like Reese Witherspoon because of the prominent chin, so maybe her. (laughs) She's gorgeous and a great actress. I mean, Legally Blonde is one of the seminal films of our time. (laughs) That would be amazing. And that concludes my my questions for Lovely. you um thank you so much for taking the time to to chat with me today and and work through technical difficulties and <laughs> and um and, and get through it thank you so much yeah well, thank you for having me it was great no, no problem at all and um yeah we'll hopefully come out the other side of this this lockdown at some point um in the near future and then we can uh, me, myself, and listeners can follow along um, with how with how you're doing with Sussex Wildlife Trust and how things are picking up again. Yes, there. it would be nice to get back out there into the field and actually <laughs> do something yes. practical. Do that. Yes. Yeah. There we go. We're we're all Soon. adapting, aren't we? It's literally affecting the whole world. So. Yeah, yeah, and hopefully, you know, when we come out the other side, then. Hopefully some changes will be made for the better in terms of, of the environment and how we treat the world. I really, really, really hope so. It would be amazing yeah. if it could happen, yeah. Absolutely. I think that's a, that's quite a nice note to end on. Some yeah. positive thoughts for the future of the planet. <laughs> Lovely. Oh, well, thank you so much. All right. Yeah, thank you. No problem at all. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. You too. Awesome. Have a lovely rest of your evening. Yeah, you too. (laughs) Okay, I'll speak to you soon. Bye. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you, everyone, for listening to episode 11. Um, I hope everybody stays safe and well. um, And hopefully, fingers crossed, by the next time I speak to you all in another couple of weeks' time, we'll be even further um, out of lockdown and things will be looking really positive. Um, Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, a couple of things in that interview there were a bit out of date as it was recorded in April. Um, So now we get more than an hour outside. Yay! So... um, I mean, that's quite good in itself, though. It just shows sort of how, how far we've come and, and things are, are positive. And, and that's always what I aim to do, keep the vibes of positivity up. Um, so keep smiling. Um, there'll be some little treats in the show notes for you, um, including Ella's Instagram and her Etsy shop and her website. Um, and there'll also be the link in there to the YouTube film Eye of the Pangolin. Um, so, yeah, get stuck into those. Um, thanks for listening, and I will speak to you again soon. Bye-bye. And remember that hope can be found even in the darkest of times if only one remembers to turn on the light. Mm-hmm.